Let's go, Buffalo. Let's go, Buffalo. The intro to this podcast may or may not age well. It is um, about 10 minutes after 4 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. I'm in the vehicle on my way to drop some pasta sauce off in Ohio. I am on official essential business. I have not, I was realizing this because I will, what I do when I do this is I'll bring sauce directly to the pizzeria. One pizzeria carries our sauce. They, you know, they use it in my hometown, JD's Pizza, shout out. And then um, there's a grocery store there that carries it. And then I'll bring some surplus sauce to my parents' house and I'll, I'll load their garage. And the last bunch of times I've been there, so awkward, you know. I stand out in the driveway. I talk to my parents a little bit, but we stand 10 feet apart. We wear masks. It's, you know, all that stuff. It's just so awkward. It's just, I miss just being able to go see my parents, man. Sucks. The one advantage to traveling back to Ohio is that I always get to eat something that's like, you know, nostalgic for me. Uh, the only advantage, because in the past, you know, I, I really kind of don't get to eat that stuff because my mom always insists on cooking. But it, now, when it, during COVID, when I go back to Ohio, I get to eat something and, uh, you know, be some restaurant that I haven't eaten at in years or something like that. But the one restaurant I wanted, Rainbow, Rainbow Pizza, is closed because they had a COVID case. So I can't even do that now. So what the F? Anyway, um, I said that the, uh, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, let's go, Buffalo, may or may not age well, because the game has not yet happened, but uh, by the time you're hearing this, it has happened, and so you'll know the result. I, on the other hand, am planning for my Cleveland Browns Sunday night football. That Monday night game, boy, I'll tell you what, when it actually happened, Browns-Ravens, I was pissed just pissed because you know my Cleveland Browns have just broken my heart so many times and over the years they've got their two rivals really Baltimore and Pittsburgh and Baltimore being a rival because it's the old Browns and Pittsburgh has just been Cleveland's rival for you know decades and in my lifetime as a fan which has really spanned since they, they uh, expanded 1999 on, really, even though the 99-2000 season I was in Italy for. So really from the year 2000, so I'm 20 years really as a, as a really big football fan. And in those 20 years, the Browns have just consistently lost to Baltimore and Pittsburgh. I mean, I, I don't know what their record is. I wouldn't be surprised if it's, you know, I guess the game, they would have played those two teams in 20 years they play them each twice a year right so here's my math so they would have played both of those teams 40 times in the last 20 years so 80 total games I wouldn't be surprised if Cleveland's 10 and 70 in my 20 years watching them play Baltimore and Pittsburgh just you know so it just it hurts more and more especially now that the Browns are a little better and they almost win that game but but after the night of Starting Tuesday morning as I woke up and I had slept on it, 
I realized how great of a game that was with the theatrics and Lamar Jackson coming out at the end of the game. And they're like, oh, no, the Ravens don't have a quarterback. Wait a minute. Here's Lamar Jackson running back out on the field. I was just I, I just thought it was awesome. And then then the Ravens score, then the Browns score back. And then the Ravens win it basically, you know, with a field goal that was not a gimme by any means. And it was a good game, you know. But now the Browns need to win tonight because they uh, – you know, now they've lost again. Now they need they they got to keep that footing and try and be the home team or not the home team, but the uh, top wild card seed. So anyway, I I just uh, I'll keep the intro short here. I just wanted to uh, stop on, say hello, tell a story about losing my wallet, and then we'll get into the panel. I was honored to host this panel uh, with Rochester Rotary and the Rochester Downtown Development Corporation. I'll talk about how that came to be in a minute. First, I want to tell you about losing my wallet. So. About once a week now, I will go to a place called Restaurant Depot in Henrietta, and I will get some stuff to kind of fill out what we need for that week for production. So my job now really, as I'm uh, owning my business, is really kind of that of a plant manager, an ops manager. The One of the hats I wear is to buy all the ingredients for us to run an entire week's worth of production. And so um, a lot of those ingredients will come from distributors, meaning they get delivered. But there's usually like some oddball ingredients. It might be that we need, you know, three number 10 cans of, I don't know, pineapple, you know, just off the top of my head. And uh, instead of ordering a split from a distributor, I'll just run to Restaurant Depot once a week and pick up all that sort of just little miscellaneous stuff that we just need a little bit of for that week. Any of the big stuff, we order a ton of hot sauce, tomato, ketchup, all that crap. We order a ton of that. But the stuff you just need a little bit of here and there, that's the stuff I'm talking about. So anyway, so about once a week, I'll go to Restaurant Depot. A lot of times when I go to Restaurant Depot, I'll try to work going to BJ's into my trip so that I can get gas because, you know, I'm a BJ's guy and the, uh, the BJ's gas is a little cheaper. So I go to Depot, I go to BJ's, driving through Henrietta there. And I, I mean, it was really a nightmare of a morning because everything was going so smooth. I needed some other powder. I needed to go to Niblack Foods, but they didn't open until 9 and it was like 8.30. So I decide I'm going to go and I'm going to get gas. I get gas. I leave BJ's. I head to Niblack. I get to Niblack and I discover I don't have my wallet. Did I leave it at Depot? Did I leave it at BJ's? No, I know I used it at BJ's, so I know I didn't leave it at Depot. But then it occurs to me, and I go, oh, my God. I did the thing where I had used my credit card to buy my gas, and then I placed my wallet on top of my vehicle. And then usually, obviously, then, you know, when I'm done getting gas, put it back in my pocket and move on. And I realized what happened was I didn't do that. I got in my vehicle, and I drove away. So now, somewhere between BJ's and Niblack, my wallet. So now I'm driving, 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 and I'm looking everywhere because in my mind I'm saying, okay, there's my wallet probably sitting somewhere. I assumed it would have fallen off of my car right away, and this is where my mistake was because I just assumed it was probably going to be within you know 50 to 100 feet of where I left getting gas. But I was wrong. I even went out into Jefferson Road. I'm driving. I'm going slow. Everyone's getting pissed at me. I'm looking around. Finally, I don't know what the hell else to do. I get a notification on my phone that I've missed a couple of Facebook calls. You know, like how you can call someone through Facebook Messenger. And in my head, I'm going, you know, probably I didn't recognize the name. I'm like, it probably doesn't mean anything. I end up clicking on 
clicking on it just to see who it was, just in case I didn't realize I knew it. And it's a guy who has tried to call me a couple times, and then it turns out he uh, also messaged me to say, yo, I think I found your wallet. So I call the guy back. He describes it. I say, absolutely, yes, you found my wallet. I will come meet you. I go to meet him, and thank God this guy has my wallet. Now, I will say it was missing all the cash that was in it. Uh, and the cash that was in it was, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to hurt. It was something like $60, right? 60 bucks is like, look, you know, I, I'm not going bankrupt over $60, but also like losing 60 bucks hurts. So the guy told me, he goes, oh yeah, there was some stuff scattered around on the ground. I was able to get a few things and he gives me like my BJ's card and like my debit card and and then, and then he gives me the wallet, but of course all the cash is gone. <laughs> so I just basically have to give this guy the benefit of the doubt that he either didn't steal the cash or that the cash was payment for, hey, I found your wallet. I'm keeping this cash, right? So I didn't even mention the cash. Then I went into, we met at like near a 7-Eleven. I went inside to the ATM and I took cash out to pay him because, again, I got to give this guy the benefit of the doubt that he didn't steal my cash. And I feel like I owe him something. What do you think I should have given him? What would you have given him? Would you have given him anything? So, okay, I gave him 100 bucks. I took $100 out of the ATM and I gave it to him. Because honestly, and when you're saying this, you're going, I can hear you right now because a couple people have said that's a lot of money to give a guy who just found your wallet and did the right thing. But here's the thing. Think about all of the work that has to go into replacing everything in your wallet. I mean, it is a gigantic pain in the ass. And he saved me from all of that. And I was so grateful. And so I was honestly happy to give the guy the 100 bucks. But here's a funny little anecdote. And here's the end. End of the story. This guy ends up writing me on Facebook Messenger about two weeks later. And he says he's a little hard up right now. He, he just, he needs 50 bucks. And I told my wife about it. And she goes, do not send him 50 bucks. And I said, I feel like I should give him 50 bucks. Because the truth is, as I was standing at that ATM, I was considering giving him $200. But then I went with 100 because I thought, you know, there's a good chance this guy stole my cash. <laughs> you know, so 100 bucks sounds right. Anyway, I, I wired him the, uh, and I say wired, like, what is it, 1947? I uh, Venmoed him the uh, $50 that he asked me for. And... My, my wife said, you know, he's going to now he's just going to ask you for money like like constantly. And and who knows what you've gotten yourself into, because eventually you got to say no to this guy if he keeps asking you for money. And then who's to say he doesn't, you know, get mad at you for that. And and also she's paranoid because he found my wallet. What does my wallet have in it? My license. What does my license have on it? My address. Right. So she's starting to get paranoid. She's like, this guy could know where we live. He's asking you for money. What if you don't give him money? Is he going to show up at our house? You know. So anyway, there's no fancy ending to this. I gave him the 50 bucks via Venmo. He thanked me, and I haven't heard from him since, and that was you know, a few weeks ago. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm in the clear. Who knows? Who knows? Okay, let's get to the, uh, the program here. So uh, about a month and a half ago, I received a call from somebody many of you might know, and if you don't, her name is Heidi Zimmermeyer. She is the president of the Rochester Downtown Development Corporation, and I was extremely flattered at why she was calling me. 
is that she was calling me to moderate a panel for the Rochester Rotary and Rochester Downtown Development Corporation's end of year luncheon that we always do. It's always held at the convention center. It's usually attracts several hundred people. And, uh, and it's usually a place where, you know, the county executive will speak, the mayor will speak, and there will usually be a couple other dignitaries and maybe even a keynote speaker of some kind. And, uh, and it's a big deal. It's a big lunch. And they decided this year, obviously it was virtual, but they decided this year that the topic would be next gen. So next generation, the uh, next generation of leaders in Rochester, specifically millennials. They wanted it to be a panel full of millennials, and they wanted it to be a, moderated by a millennial, and that's me. So uh, I, I won't talk any more about the panel right here, right now, because, well, you're about to hear the panel. So uh, I hope you like it. Enjoy. By the way, this will be the last time we speak before the holidays, so Merry Christmas, Happy Whatever. Uh, and I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Appreciate the support very much. Love you. Enjoy. to introduce Heidi Zimmermeyer. Hello, everybody. Welcome. So we've got uh, three series sponsors today. The first is the Community Preservation Corporation, a not-for-profit affordable housing and community revitalization finance company. Since its inception, CPC has leveraged over $11 billion, that's with a B, in private and public investment to finance more than 196,000 units of multifamily housing, revitalizing countless neighborhoods across the state. Our second series sponsor is M&T Bank, which has been around for more than 160 years, which I find stunning. M&T ranks among the top commercial bank holding companies in the US with nearly 140 billion in assets. And it's one of the nation's most experienced small business lenders for which we're very grateful here in Rochester. M&T Bank also uh, operates Wilmington Trust, a wealth management firm serving individual and institutional clients. Our third series sponsor is the Greater Rochester Enterprise, committed to attracting new capital investments, creating regional wealth and growing jobs. Their team connects you to real estate options, business development incentives, workforce recruitment and training, and entrepreneurial services. They are the first call you should make if you want to grow your business. When you see a big deal come together in our region, they've probably had a hand in making it happen. We have four corporate sponsors today. RIT is a nationally recognized STEM university with nearly 19,000 students and graduates from all 50 states and 100 countries. 
S&T Bank is a $9.5 billion financial holding company with a full range of services to individuals and businesses in upstate New York, Pennsylvania, and Northern Ohio. Vargas Associates, a professional interior design and facilities project management firm with offices in Rochester and Buffalo. Visit Rochester, our official tourism promotional agency with initiatives that attract conventions, meetings, group tourism, and leisure visitors to the greater Rochester area. Check out their website. It's got chock full of great, great info. Our supporting sponsor today is Rock 2025, and I want to thank all of these fine companies and institutions for their support. Now, I'd like to introduce Dan Burns from M&T Bank, who will help to introduce today's panel. Thank you, Heidi, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. It is my pleasure to start by introducing our moderator, Polly Guglielmo. I knew I was going to botch that. Sorry, Polly. Uh, a well-known radio personality on the Brother Wee show for 15 years. Polly also developed a line of pasta sauces from Family Recipes under the name Guglielmo's Homegrown Marina, Marinara Sauce. He purchased Permac earlier this year, a USDA-approved cannery manufacturing plant in Bergen, New York, authorized to develop shelf-stable products made with meat. Polly earned his BS in psychology from John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio. Our first panelist, Steve Carter, is an independent marketing consultant that has previously worked at local firms such as Butler Till and Brand Networks, before most recently serving as the global head of social media at Kodak. A city resident, he graduated from Roberts Wesleyan with a BS in management and social entrepreneurship. Steve started Explore Rochester, an Instagram account with over 43,000 followers, dedicated to sharing a new perspective of Rochester every week. He is also a founding member of the Social Media Conference, Upstate Social Sessions, and has been a vocal advocate for turning Parcel 5 into an equitable green space in the heart of downtown Rochester. Our second panelist is Maya Johnson-Dunn. Maya is the creator of Chasing Grapeness, a Finger Lakes-focused wine blog who evolved to doing a series of wine pairing dinners. Through her dinners, she shines a light on the lack of diversity within the wine industry in New York State and beyond in the hopes of creating a more inclusive atmosphere for everyone, regardless of skin color. When she's not pursuing wine activism, she's writing mostly about wine online and working as an event marketing consultant. The Boston native recently made Rochester her home where she lives with her husband, dog, and two cats. And our third panelist, uh, Lauren Galena, grew up in the family business. She started out working in the advertising industry before joining the family real estate development firm. Now marketing director at Galena Development Corporation, Lauren is passionate about downtown development, oversees marketing for the entire Galena portfolio, and is co-owner of the restaurant Bar Bantam, which is located in the Metropolitan. Their next big game changer is transforming the former Xerox built tower into Innovation Square. We're all excited about that. And Lauren earned a BA degree in communications from Loyola University in, in Maryland and an executive MBA from the Simon School. Heidi, back to you. Our fourth panelist is the newest member of, of the Rochester City Council, Miguel Melendez. By day, Miguel is the Chief Community Engagement Officer at Ibero American Action League, a dual language human services agency. 
His work improves planning efforts, creates partnerships, enhances case management services, and supports residents in improving the quality of life in their neighborhoods. Miguel is a product of the Rochester City School District and graduated from East High School. He earned his bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in philosophy from St. John Fisher College. Our fifth panelist, Rachel Labor Polvino, is the Director of Market Communications and Public Relations for Visit Rochester. In this role, she regularly reaches out to regional, national, and international media to share Rochester's story and helps media and visitors discover the unique activities and attractions that make Rochester special. Raised in Rochester, Rachel earned a BA in communication at SUNY Geneseo and an MS in public relations from the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Our last panelist is Rashad J. Smith. Rashad is a creative entrepreneur and an award-winning media professional. He collaborates on a wide range of projects and initiatives to help effectively communicate messages. He's currently making an impact with Causewave Community Partners, 105.5 FM, The Beat Rochester, and the, the Rock Black Agenda Group. Rashad is co-founder of the Rock Freedom Riders, a movement modeled after the original Freedom Riders of the 1960s. It uses bike brigades to deliver messages of racial justice and advancing the economic conditions in the black community. Rashad is a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Inc. and earned his BA in communications from Johnson C. Smith University, a historically black college in Charlotte, North Carolina. And now I'll turn over the microphone, so to speak, to our moderator, Polly Guglielmo. Polly? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for allowing me to do this and for helping me break my 47-day sweatpants and sweatshirt streak that I had going. Uh, I mean, I still have the sweatpants. You can't see down there, but at least I wore pants. So I feel like that's a win to begin with. Um, thank you for being here. This is a, it, uh, it's an honest to God honor. And I think we're going to have a great discussion over the next hour. The first couple of questions are going to be for all panelists. So I'll kind of walk you through and, and call on you one by one. Um, we're going to get into some deeper topics later, but we'll start with an overview. Uh, Steve, why don't we start with you? The question is, and really for all of you, this, this goes, I mean, you could all be living anywhere. You're successful people. You're smart. There's warmer climates. There's bigger cities. There's places where you could even maybe have bigger opportunities for your businesses or your cause, whatever it is that you're doing, but you choose Rochester. You choose to stay in Rochester. Why do you choose Rochester? Steve, let's start with you. Yeah. Uh, I've been asked that actually a lot lately. Um, and I've, I've lived in California for a decade before I lived in Saratoga area, uh, like four hours away for a decade. And I've spent the last decade here in Rochester and, and truly to me, I mean, there's so many things you can, you can list. I, I could keep going, but really like one of my favorite things is just that it's a, it's got the amenities of a city, like everything you can need from a city. Yet it has like that small town feel to an extent where you can really get to know the community, get to know people. And really, to me, at the end of the day, it's the people. Like the people are the most important thing. And I've, I've really fallen in love with the people in the place here. And I am committed to staying. And so I've had some job opportunities come up. And that was like the number one thing. I'm like, I'm staying here. And some of them were like, yeah, we'll make it work. And so 
that's that's what I'm doing now. So yeah, that's people. great. Yeah, it's like um, it's like Bruce Springsteen plays here, but also if you go out to eat here, you're gonna run into someone you know. It's small and big at the I same. I love that. Yeah, perfect. Exactly. Maya, how how about you? Why do you choose Rochester? Uh, Rochester surprised me. Um, it, it's got this bustling core of entrepreneurship and small businesses, which are you know just holding on and doing their best right now. It's incredible. Um, and this delicious food scene. And then we've got the Finger Lakes like less than an hour away, depending on where you live and incredible hikes, you know, just around the corner. And I think it's really cool that you have, you know, I've lived in New York City. I've got the bustle of New York City and, and the food of New York City with, you know, sort of the comfort and home of the small town that I'm from outside of Boston. Um, and that's why I stay. Thank you. Lauren, how about you? So Rochester, um, I was born and raised here and lived in Maryland for my undergrad, um, but Rochester is truly home and it's a special place. I think uh, to Steve's point, the people are, are what makes Rochester kind of tick. It's a, an incredibly generous community. Um, there's opportunity to do things on a scale here where you can really make an impact, um, where I think in other markets, uh, it might be more difficult to do so. Um, and and I think that um, the access to connecting people and to, to being connected is, is um, really special here and, and creates a really unique community. So um, it's certainly home for me and we're, we're deeply rooted here. So happy to be here. Miguel? Yeah, for me, I, I, you know, Rochester has a lot of character, perseverance and opportunity. Um, born and raised here too. Um, it's home for me. Love the city. I feel like I can make a difference here in my slice of the world. Um, we have the right mix of diverse, diversity. Uh, it's very affordable. And really, Rochester is a town of fighters and relationships. I think that, as everyone else said, this is a really small town vibe, but um, we are a city that has tremendous opportunities. Rachel. Yeah, I would echo a lot of um, the other panelists' comments, but in terms of why Rochester, I always like to say that Rochester is a small city that never got the memo that it's not a big city. So, um, you know, I, I am from Rochester, but I did spend some time in New York City, and I, when I moved back home, I just couldn't believe that there was just so much to do here, whether it was checking out new restaurants or always going to different events or things like that. So, um, you know, I, I, I really, I do love Rochester. Um, I love the art, the culture, all the things that there are to see and do here. And then to kind of echo Lauren's point, um, I believe that, you know, in a community like Rochester, you can actually move the needle. You know, if there's something that you want to make a difference in or something you want to get involved in, you can actually wrap your arms around it and feel like you're a part of the community versus, you know, it's easier to get kind of lost in the shuffle in a, in a bigger city. And then lastly, just, it's so accessible here. Certainly there's very little traffic, but also meaning, you know, say I want to make a, a connection. I know I could probably reach out to any of the panelists, you know, through our different networks and um, everyone here is just so willing to pick up the phone and help one another. So um, those are just some of the many reasons why, why Rochester for me. We're going to go deeper in, in this, on this exact question with Rachel in just a minute or two here, but let me first go to Rashad. Rashad, same question. Why Rochester? Um a greater purpose that I have yet to understand, honestly. Uh, considering my career path and having had to create my own opportunities, probably because of the lack thereof, um, and extraordinary missing elements of Black culture for young Black professionals, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it's family or the network that I've built in fear of letting go. 
I'm not sure. So I'll just roll with divine purpose for now. Great answer. I'm, I'm not from Rochester. I, I had never even heard of Rochester, New York until I was about 23 years old. I came here being sure I was going to be here for one year and move on. And I fell in love. There was just a, there's like a, you know what, it, you know what it is. If you say you're going to do something in Rochester, people are like, cool, cool. Do that thing. That sounds great. And I just, I love that. Let's, let's turn the tables though on this exact question. And maybe we'll go reverse order this time. So Rashad, we'll go right back to you. What is our, um, not to use a corporate word, what's our non-strength? What's our, what's our weakness? The thing that when it comes up, you're like, yeah, we, we got to be better at that. Rashad? Yeah, you know, I think that it's really around the racial wage gap. Um, I think as a city, as leaders in the current movement for Black Lives, equity, justice, we just have to do a better job at retaining young professionals overall, but particularly young Black professionals who, in my experience, have complained about the lack of opportunities for Black professionals, um, which may result in a less attractive cultural scene for Black professionals. But I think that we have to do a better job at addressing the racial wage gap. Okay, Rachel? Um, I would say so certainly our community has significant challenges, um, you know, structurally, but um, from where I sit in the world of tourism, one of our greatest challenges is actually just a lack of, of local pride. Um, and, you know, it's like, I feel like at times we can be our own worst enemy as a community and, you know, we will double down on our weaknesses, but not often enough celebrate those great accomplishments and achievements. So um, I say that in, you know, full recognition of the fact that there are significant challenges that we need to overcome as a community, but at the same time, um, if we could have more civic pride and really bolster that, it would have a positive impact across many different facets of our community, from tourism to business development to, to more. Miguel? Yeah, this kind of goes with my first answer on what I love about Rochester. Um, I think we have the opportunities. I just worry about all the divides that we have. During the pandemic, we've uncovered the digital divide. Um, but before that, we also had the economic, racial, social justice divide, ec educational issues, and it particularly impacts those living in poverty with an emphasis on black and brown communities. Um, I think I have some solutions to that, but I'll save that for later in the panel. Okay, Lauren? So I, um, I agree with Rachel on a lot of, of what she said. You know, my focus has been on downtown development and attracting people downtown in order to um, reactivate and re-engage um, community, the community down there. And a lot of it's perception, a lot of it's based around, you know, oh, downtown's not safe or, oh, um, you know, that's only for one type of person or, you know, and, and our focus is really on trying to, to wrap our arms around that and make sure that we dispel some of those things that, that um, you know, it is safe to be downtown. It is a welcoming community. It is a neighborhood um, that, that there's things happening and, and things to do that are for everyone. So um, I think I think our challenge is that perception and, and our, our job is to continue to dispel some of that. Okay, Maya. Um, so I'm still kind of the new kid in Rochester. I moved here, I guess this is now three going on my third year. Um, and so I feel like I can only really speak to what I'm struck by with what I've seen in the short amount of time. And uh, it's very much aligned with what Rashad and Miguel have already said. I'm just sometimes amazed by the poverty swing that we see in the city, um, which, you know, 
already seems so affordable to live. And, and if we were, you know, maybe to look a little bit more at our resources and how we utilize them, we might find that we can help people along a little bit more. Um, yeah. yeah, the, the, the um, one of the things about it goes kind of with what you were saying, but a little different is the geography of this city. Like um, when we were in national, when we we're in the national news, like recently we were um, my, my family and friends will text me and they'll be like, well, that's real far from where you are. Right. And I live like in Brighton, 12 corners. And I'm going, no, that's 1.3 miles away from where I like, people don't realize it's everything's small and close. I'm um, sorry, Steve. No. Yeah. I mean, what everybody said, I would agree with completely. Um, and there's elements of it, like from the perception, I see that um, from the actual structural problems that we have um, and the divides. Um, I really like, for me, it's, it's oftentimes like looking at the gaps and seeing those as potential opportunities though, um, where we can, if we come together um, and really focus on these different problems or these different issues, uh, trying to fill those gaps or connect those gaps, bridge those gaps. And I think, yeah, that goes from like uh, geography to like, there's, I mean, literally bridging the gap is like filling in part of the inner loop, which uh, you're now starting to see connection there. And, and so like, we need to do more of that. Um, and one of the other things I'd say uh, that I've talked with a lot of people uh, my age to our age uh, is that there's a gap too in opportunities for uh, jobs for this next generation. There's oftentimes, there's a lot of opportunities when it comes to entry level work. And then there's a lot of opportunities at like that, once you've established your career and you're at a higher manager level, there's opportunities, but there's a gap in that growth, that career growth. So oftentimes I see a lot of people leaving Rochester during that phase before maybe coming back when they've gained experience but right now there's I, I think there's a gap there in opportunities and that that goes for everybody that's yeah there's a lot of gaps when it comes to that so yeah well let's talk about focus let's talk about fixing it um let me go back uh Rashad let's go back to you Miguel you also mentioned you've got ideas now you're in a position with city council but let's start with Rashad this is your at this point this is your life's work is fixing the problem. Rashad, can you tell us the actual real world day by day, week by week, what is actually happening to fix the problem right now? Yeah, uh, amazing question. Um, I think that what, I'm not quite sure what's happening, right? And I, I think that we know the different subgroups who are doing their work, the various organizations who are continue to do their work. Uh, but I think that we're in a unique position to address some of the issues that we talked about head on. Um, but what do we need to do to address them is probably the question. Not like what we're doing. What do we need to do to advance how we're addressing? For starters, I think that, and I'm here from this perspective of uh, equity and, and, and advocating and amplifying messages around the, the movement for Black lives. But for starters, there, there must be some sort of massive investment in Black people and Black professionals and Black communities to do the work to advance our own communities and a massive effort amongst those who are in power, in power or, or with privilege to acknowledge this and for us to begin to reallocate resources to answer what many black leaders in Rochester are calling for. Okay. Uh, Miguel, how about you? you you're now you're, you're city council now, you're in a position to actually make things happen. What are some of your plans? How do you, how do you fix our weaknesses? 
Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to say there. Um, I'm going to echo Rashad a little bit and say that I think we need to have concentrated investments in areas where we have concentrated challenges. Um, when I say investments, it's not just about funding, but that helps too. I think it's about energy and effort. Um, we have to look at the neighborhoods with the least amount of investments because they often have the most opportunities. And we have to start asking the questions, why and how? I think one of our weaknesses is that we are risk averse in certain neighborhoods and deficit focused. Um, when I began my career at Ibero, I started much of my work at the intersection of Clifford and Conkey Avenues. Um, for many people, they looked at that corner park that we built there and said, we're just building a park for drug dealing. Uh, but for me and many others in the neighborhood, we looked at it as we're building a playground for the neighborhood that was 90% plus black and brown, a playground for kids in a diverse neighborhood, um, a place where disinvestment was the norm, but people, the people there are beautiful. So I tend to see assets where there are challenges. And we as a city, I think we need to start finding more ways to create equitable opportunities. It can be done. Uh, there's proof of it uh, in pockets around the city. I think in the El Camino neighborhood, one, one thing I'd point to is that one project leveraged another. So, you know, when we first built that playground, then, then the, the walking and biking trail El Camino came. And then after that, snow, uh, snowballed and new housing, uh, new economic development projects came to the area. And it really started from the bottom up. So I think um, what we have to do is acknowledge where we've fallen short on a neighborhood by neighborhood level. Um, find those old uh, shelf plans, dust them off, update them, and begin to ask, what can we do better? And how can we do it with the people who live in those neighborhoods and not for them? Miguel, I'm going to come back to you. you we're we're going to talk more on this in a little while. We'll get into some of the specific things. But uh, I want to give the other panelists a chance to weigh in on the, the fixing. People have used the word building. Lauren, this is what you do. You build, right? Can you give us your perspective on how you think Galena development, how, how will you build in, and fix uh, some of the weaknesses or problems with our city? Yeah, I mean, the continued investment that we've been putting in, but I think as as people, as as a white person of privilege, we have to continue to educate ourselves. We have to familiarize ourselves with the, the neighborhoods that Miguel just spoke of, that we have to drive around and see the divide. I mean, the Metropolitan is, is a major investment that we've made in downtown, but a mile down the road, it, it looks very different quickly. So we have to continue to educate ourselves. We have to um, seek those resources to do so and not assume that it's just gonna be handed to us to, to make it better. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done and, and we can only do that together. So um, continuing conversations like this, and um, I did Leadership Rochester. I sit on the board of an organization called Teen Empowerment that does great work in, in the Genesee Street neighborhood. Um, there's, there's ways that, that we can help educate ourselves um, more as we continue these conversations. And this is a really pivotal moment in time that these conversations are happening. I had the pleasure of, of going to one of Maya's dinners at Avino over the summer and um, really, really enjoyed that. So, um, you know, we have, to, we have to seek the opportunities to be able to, to educate ourselves to the best of our ability. So Lauren, take, take us inside of a Galena development meeting when you're looking at a place in the city that's maybe underdeveloped and you're considering, maybe we invest here, maybe we develop here. Yeah. What, what is something that an area can do to get on your radar, to get brought up in a, in, an, in a Galena meeting where you guys are saying, let's talk about this? So our most recent example is Innovation Square with the Xerox um, campus that we're redeveloping. And, um, 
you know, and very much like the Metropolitan when we purchased it, it was it was very much a, an exclusive office building. It, it literally, quite literally had a moat around it that the Metropolitan did. And as we look at the site of Xerox, um, how, we, how we can welcome people into our spaces instead of keep them off our lawn, um, you know, how you create public spaces that people can engage with and interact with and, and feel welcome, not um, stay off our property. Um, so, so much of that is opening up the spaces and the places to, to the community and to the, and making people feel welcome. Um, we're hopeful, uh, we're working on, on a couple different incubator and accelerator ideas for Innovation Square that would include a focus on, on uh, people of color and underprivileged um, youth that may have opportunities um, to, to start businesses and entrepreneurship. Um, so we're, we're definitely focusing on that as we continue to develop this with, with uh, working with the colleges and universities. So we're excited to um, have more time to explore that, but um, certainly something that we're, that we're looking into. Maya, let's go back to you. Um, we're still kind of meandering around the question of fixing the weaknesses. What do you think? How do we fix it? Um, you know, it, you sort of honed in on something that I didn't say, but started to in my first answer, probably, which when I moved to Rochester, and I promise I will come back around and answer your question. When I moved to Rochester, um, part of the way that I started to learn the city was to drive around with my GPS and use avoid highways. Um, and it's also just kind of default because my mother and I do not like to drive on highways in general. Um, it's a great way to learn your city. Um, what I notice is you drive past just incredible building throughout this Rochester. It's incredible what is happening all at once. It kind of feels like um, Dubai in many ways where you just have cranes and stuff just happening at once. Um, and then you drive a mile down the road, like Lauren is saying, and you see, you know, um, a neighborhood that feels like it's been forgotten. Um, and I think that uh, that's sort of what I was trying to hint at in, in that I feel like we just sort of need a moment to sort of reset and everybody get together and have these conversations like Lauren is talking about because part of how we don't forget neighborhoods and people is by constantly talking and keeping them in our, our current. Um, and I think that sometimes what happens is we just kind of say, well, well, that's not so pretty about us and we forget about it. Um, and we need to sort of work through it and figure out how we can solve it together. So I think there's a lot of conversation that we just need to have as communities, not just, you know, at home behind closed doors, but, um, you know, like this, you know, like Lauren said, I think it's just really important. Um, and then taking another look at what we're doing with how we're spending, you know, our money and our funding and where is it being directed? Are we giving the people the opportunities that really need them? Going back to what, you know, Rashad keeps talking about with equity. It's very different than equality. And that's something that's so important for us to really look into and understand as well. Um, and I think that those two things are huge because one day it'd be really great to drive through Rochester and, you know, not be so surprised one mile down the road when you see this brand new high rise compared to, you know, this forgotten neighborhood. Yeah. Um, Steve, I'll come back to you, uh, give you an opportunity to weigh in on fixing it. Yeah. Uh, I think, again, everybody has really great suggestions and great answers to this. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot to do with, we, we just really have a, a beautifully diverse city, like really like so many different cultures, so many people from all over the world truly here, people that have lived here their whole lives, moved here recently, moved here like generations ago. And, and I think really involving people in the next stage or the next step forward is really important um, where you're really bringing people together in that. And 
part of the ways that you do that is through the built environment. And I think when we talk about the things that are really great about Rochester, a lot of times people talk about the parks, they talk about the, the river now too, uh, just different spaces or places that people can be. And, and it's, I think it's really important to make sure that those are equitable and places that can be used by everyone. And I, I think what we're doing along the river with like even the new skate park being built along the river uh, is a place that anybody can use. And, and skateboarding is a really diverse uh, sport. And it's, it's, it's been amazing beside a pandemic to see uh, how many people use that space. And we need to make sure that those spaces are accessible to people where if they don't have cars too, they could walk to them, that we have transit that brings people to these spaces from anywhere in the city and then also in their neighborhoods too. But, um, and then I'll also say, I always throw in something about parcel five, but you have a space in the center of the city, which is truly the, the heart of the city. And, and there's, it's been empty for five plus years now. And, and that's a space where you truly can create something that's so close to, you have the, the bus station right there. You have people crisscrossing through there. You have so much investment going on downtown that having that space being a cultural hub, a place that anybody can use and anybody can access, I think is really important uh, to, there's, there's aspects that are psychological and there's aspects that are like truly in reality too. And, and I think there's, there's something that, going back to what Rachel said before that we have, we have, we do have a pride issue here. Like when you get into conversations, people are really proud of Rochester, but we don't have this like unified Rochester pride. There's not something, we don't have a sports team. I mean, we're all rooting for the bills and the Sabres and whatnot, but like, we don't have a Rochester. Okay. Red wings. Um, I do have red wings on, but like, we, we don't have that as like the thing that like leads pride. So I think there's elements of that, like, collective pride that we we need together so yeah really coming together i think is key well it's a good transition actually back to rachel we're going to do a little deep dive on talking to people outside of rochester but first rachel i want to give you the opportunity to address the question of fixing said weaknesses yeah, I would um, certainly echo a lot of what the other panelists have shared. I know that, you know, certainly this past year has been really challenging for our community on a number of different levels, and it's really brought to light um, just the great inequity that does exist within our community. So I always just try to think about, like, what can I do within my own personal sphere of influence? And, and you know, certainly a lot of that is having these conversations, um, doing a lot of listening, and also finding out the leaders who are working within, you know, within their communities on these issues and, and listening to them and asking them, what, what's the work that you're doing and how can I get involved? How can I support you? Um, so, you know, I think that we do, though, there is a sense of, um, you know, of, of two different Rochester's and we do need to work together to bring everyone together and ensure that that this community can be an equitable and enriching place for everyone. Um, and again, it, it all will ladder back up to the work that I do and trying to, you know, attract people here, bring people here so they spend more money here. Um, within our, again, within my service influence within the world of tourism, we're taking a good look at all of the different businesses that we promote and ensuring that we have a good mix of product that is really reflective of the fabric of the community. Um, and so that's something that we're excited to expand on in the new year. Let's stick with you, Rachel, because a lot of the last few minutes has been about uh, Rochester itself and, and our own little you know, us within ourselves, but you're dealing with people outside of Rochester, people who don't know Rochester. 
at all much, whatever. Um, let's do a little deep dive on that real quick. Tell us what, it, what is it like to try to sell Rochester to a big conference or something that wants to come to town? I mean, what, what are the things that are, that are your big selling points? What are the things that you're like, uh-oh, uh, but it, what does everyone always bring up? Tell, just tell us a little bit about your experiences. Sure. Yeah. So I always like to say I have the very best job in the world because my client, the, the thing that I get to promote day in and day out is Rochester. Um, so, and Rochester, you know, we are, we're like the unsung hero. We are so under the radar. We're at times underappreciated. And so when we get to bring people here who really like their perceptions of the community and, and it's, you know, we, we work with such a wide range of visitors that are coming here for convention, meeting sports events. They're coming to see the Strong Museum of Play or the East Town. So you've got you know, such a wide range of, of folks bringing their own perception. But certainly when we're out talking to folks at trade shows and things, you know, things that always come up is like people just think that it's cold, gray, Kodak. Um, they often inquire about those three things, snow in that particular order, maybe garbage plates. Um, so what our team does day in and day out is work to, uh, we work to shift that perception and really help people understand that Rochester is, again, this very, we call ourselves the cultural capital of upstate New York. We, um, for a city our size, so, okay, we talked about our challenges, and I know I noted that, you know, folks need better civic rights. So everyone take out your pen and pencil. I'm going to arm you with some great facts so the next time in, you know, a couple months when we're back at cocktail parties, you can talk up Rochester. But for a city our size, we truly have an arts and cultural scene that is just unparalleled with other cities, like, us in the country. And so we... And not to mention um, all the, the beautiful outdoor recreation, the um, the parks, all the different amenities that we have. You know, we like to say that Rochester is limitless because there's really no limit to what you can do and no reason to do it anywhere else. So folks, when they come here from out of town, they, again, I don't know if it's because they're, they're are so low, but they are just blown away by the community. They can't get over how beautiful it is here. The, the rich architecture, I think we take for granted, just like how much history is here and even just how old some of the buildings are, are. You know, in other parts of the country, they don't have these beautiful different architectural styles of buildings that have been here for, you know, over a hundred years. Um, they're impressed by the, again, the sheer number of things there are to do in normal times, all of our wonderful festivals, our events, our food scene, and again, everyone go out, get gift cards right now, get merchandise, support your local restaurants. They need it. We need to make sure these businesses are here for when visitors return, but they're blown away by the food scene. And one of my absolute favorite things to do is, um, and you can all do this as well, I take people to the rooftop of the Genesee Brew House. I don't let them really look around when we get there. I take them right to the rooftop and I open the door and then I wait for the audible gasp that I hear when they see a 96 foot waterfall in the middle of downtown Rochester. And it's like the coolest thing. And I every time without fail, people are just so surprised to see this gorgeous high falls waterfall in the middle of downtown. So um, gosh, you know, they, they really, I, once we get people here, the, the experience is so positive. People are blown away at how friendly everyone is, how welcoming everyone is. We've got a little bit of a Midwestern thing there, I'd say, just in terms of how welcoming of a community we are. So um, there's something for everyone, the outdoors, the art, the history, the culture, the food. Um, and if you ever are wondering you know, what to do or if you think there's nothing to do here, first of all, you're not looking hard enough. But second of all, check out Um, We want folks, whether they're coming from 50 miles away or five miles away, to have the very best experience and to discover all that Rockstar has to offer. 
you're the you're the best for that job. You really are. Like, just, I'm sold. I, <laughs> I love it. Uh, what I was in my early 20s when I moved to Rochester and getting my buddies from Ohio to come visit me here at, the first time was like pulling teeth. Right? They're like, I gotta drive to what is it again, Rochester? The, then after they came the first time, it was it always came up in our group chat. It was always like, we should go back to Rochester. Let's go back. That was fun. Let's do Rochester. So it sells itself if you can just get people here. It's a Great job, Rachel. Um, let's shift. Let's shift gears back over to uh, Miguel. Let's go a little bit more of a deep dive with you, Miguel, and, and the rest of our panelists, of course. But we'll start with you um, on some of the challenges and uh, get a little bit more specific. So uh, you start where you want to start. Schools, police community relationship, huge one, right? Um, race relations we've touched on. We can go a lot deeper there. Miguel, the floor is yours. Where do you want to start? What do you want to address? What are you most excited to sink your teeth into on city council. Sure, thank you. Um, there's a lot to say here, but I'll try to stick to three main points. As a lifelong Rochester native and product of the city school district, go east by the way, um, I would say we have a systemic pipeline problem. Um, we need to realign our priorities around the jobs of our future in this region. Uh, I was told that in 2025, we're expected to have up to 20,000 new jobs in the region. That was before COVID hit, so things may have changed. But if that is the case, then we need to be talking about how the citizens of Rochester are positioned for those opportunities and careers. The region should not be recruiting for people outside of the, uh, the, the area for these jobs, these Rochester jobs, if we can avoid it, based on where we land in the poverty rankings. Um, I think that we should be all working towards um, finding ways to create pathways for our people Program designs at local colleges and institutions must be designed for the 14 year old right now that's in the district. Um, if you're looking five years out, because th those are the folks that we wanna get in that pipeline for those job opportunities. And it must be flexible enough to suit their lifestyles. The second thing I'll, I'll, I'll bring up is that um, I think you know we, we have great opportunities in the Rock 2034 comprehensive plan to focus on equity and development and placemaking. Uh, Council Member Evans um, calls the comp plan our North Star, and he's right. I, th I think personally I've expressed that I would like to see geographic and racial equity become a major part of the next four, 15 years of development in our city. Um, how do we continue to create sensible development projects that uplift black and brown neighborhoods? Where is the access to the river, for example, if you live on the north side of the city near the gorge? The comp plan uh, really brings an equity and placemaking lens to all city departments and is very exciting. Um, we have to leverage that as citizens, as, as community members. Um, people need hope and to believe in their neighborhood that they can walk out the front door and investments will be happening in their community. Um, and, and no one is looking for a handout. I think people in the city are looking for a handout, especially in these economic times we're in with the pandemic and all the circumstances surrounding it. And my third point will be police reform. Uh, no matter where you land on the spectrum of supporting law enforcement or defunding the police, I think we can all agree that there are certain things that do not belong in law enforcement's purview. I'll be clear up front, I work closely with RPD. I have several uh, projects that are, and, and issues that I've worked on with, with law enforcement. However, police officers are not social workers, they're not mental health professionals, and the job has become larger and larger over time. In the city of Rochester, we are a 911-based, uh, response-based police department. Uh, we have added to the reasons to dispatch police, and that has implications. 
So I believe that we need to scale those pieces back and appropriate funds to services that can address community needs, uh, redirect calls um, through 911 dispatch to appropriate parties and invest upstream in prevention on a micro level in communities of color. Um, I've spoken to and listened to people on all sides of the argument, and I believe there are some common sense and common ground changes that can occur in the city. Working with uh, Council Vice President Lightfoot, I'm a part of a group that includes representation from the Police Accountability Board, the Race Commission, UCLM, the Mayor Warren's administration, and others to respond to the Governor's Executive Order 203 uh, on police reform, on, which is due by April 1st of, the, of this upcoming year. We don't have a lot of time, but the group has been working diligently to solicit input from various sources and brought in some outside expertise to dive into it. So to recap, jobs pipeline, neighborhood revitalization and equity through the comp plan, and a deep dive into common sense police reform. It's been addressed a, a, a lot, but I'm gonna ask you the question again. When you hear defund the police, um, some people just don't know what that means. Some people just think it means get rid of the police. That's not what it means, right? Miguel, can you tell what defund the police means, A, and B, where do you want to move those funds to? Yeah, I think the defund the police message gets uh, lost. What people are really saying is um, appropriating resources um, to, to the appropriate services to address community needs. It's, it's basically what I said um, earlier, but um, it, it's not necessarily that you wanna completely strike down the police department totally. Um, some people are on the abolitionist kick too. So there's, there's a mix of messaging in the community, but I think the, 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 the rationale behind it is to say that there are certain aspects of the job that don't, don't belong in the police's purview. Rashad, um, I'd love to have you weigh in on this, the, uh, the, the specifically police community relations. What is the thing that can maybe make it actually come together and get everyone on the same page? Is it even possible? What are the steps that need to be taken? Where are you on all this? Yeah, I think it's acknowledgement. I think it's for local officials. Uh, I think it's police officers saying, all right, what exactly is the term defund the police? I remember when the term first hit and me even moving this racial justice equity movement, um, I didn't really agree on the term. And then I learned more about the term. I had to sit down and I had to Google, do a Google search and understand different perspectives of what it meant. And it really just supports divesting funds from the police and reinvesting or reallocating those funds to various services, you know, uh, housing, education, et cetera. Um, and so I, I really think that it is for our leaders and those people who are in those positions as law enforcement officers, as the chief, as the mayor, et cetera, for us to acknowledge exactly what that is, what are uh, advocates saying about defunding the police, what exactly it means, and how do we address the community members? Folks are not just hollering and taking off of work and jeopardizing health and wellness in the middle of COVID because it's fun. Um, I think that we have to do a good job listening and addressing the issues that majority of the city is speaking out against. I did wanted to take one thought from uh, the, comp the there's a question in the chat and somebody is asking, although the geography is close within Metro Rochester, how do we explain the significant distance between the schools and the opportunity? Uh, what can we do better? And so you, you talk some about, all right, what do we do to make this change? What can we do to act now? And I think that we are in such a, a critical position, a very important point to where we can change the way education is done. 
you know, education has been systemically the same for decades, for generations on end. So this is an opportunity for us to make that drastic change around education. We're, and we are seeing that because of COVID-19. So it is an opportunity for us to, Miguel talked a little bit about the digital divide. So we have to understand what the digital divide is and how do we address that? It goes back to the conversation around equity. Mm -hmm. You know, some of our students are not able to access a laptop or the internet. They just don't have the resources to do so. So this is an opportunity for us to say, all right, we're talking about defunding the police. Let's take some of that money and put it towards the digital divide and helping uh, you know, students so that we, like Miguel said, when those 14 year olds become 19, 20 year olds, they won't have those struggles. Um, a lot of the things that I think are easy fixes until you get into the work, <laughs> you know, but I, I often wonder how easy our leaders think that these fixes are. And I think that they will see that they're pretty easy if they use, if, if, they able, if they're able to collaborate and hear the community and use the community to help fix those issues. Okay. Um, great stuff, great answer. There's a lot to go off there, but I, I'm gonna come back still to police community relationship. I wanna give everyone else a chance to maybe weigh in on this. I'll just go right down the list. We'll go back to the top. Steve, what do you think? What is your perspective on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, uh, my first step in all of this is to start by listening and learning um, uh, on my own or having conversations with people I trust and, and care about and, and just being able to try to understand uh, what's going on and where people stand. Because you can have an opinion, like an intrinsic opinion that comes from how you were raised or, or what you perceived, but you don't always understand how what your actions are doing affect other people or what you desire as an outcome, how that might affect other people negatively, even though you think it's a positive thing. And so um, at the same time, I'm, I'm pro justice. I mean, like from my beliefs, I, I believe that we are called to pursue justice. And I, I think that's uh, super important. Um, but then going back specifically to uh, police community relations, I think there's a story that I, I've kept going back to that I think is like, it sets a precedent for like all this when we're talking about defunding the police potentially is uh, in Pittsburgh decades ago, um, that's where the first ever ambulance um, corporation came from. Uh, it's called Freedom House Ambulance Service. Uh, Prior to that, uh, it was the police that were in charge of getting people to the hospital when there was an accident or anything like that. And they saw very poor rates of recovery. People would die on the scene too. And, and it wasn't until they saw that that was an actual problem. There was in a community that was disinvested, that's where Freedom House started and it they saw the rates of recovery and the people being saved skyrocket because there was investment in it. And so um, that's when they, that set the stage for paramedics across the world it started there. Yeah. And so I think it's a similar conversation now where we're talking about police are doing too many things. And I think if you can start piecing off those things to having concentrated effort on the, on the areas that need it, I think that's, that's where uh, you can start seeing more positive results and having the right people show up. And so 
that's kind of all over the place, but that's that story. I, I highly recommend looking into Freedom House um, because that's a precedent for a lot of the, this conversation we're having today. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Lauren, you, um, you mentioned uh, earlier, you, you talked about your own privilege. I think I, I come from the, the same place with that. I think that at, at one point in my life, I kind of, I kind of realized it, you know, but you were talking a little bit about how to, um, well, I, I'll share a story. I don't know if this, I never have, I've literally never shared this story years on the radio. I never shared this story, but this one time when I was in my early tw um, mid twenties, I guess I was working at a haunted house on the West side of uh, Rochester. I was Michael Myers and uh, I was a good Michael Myers, by the way. Um, but anyway, I, uh, it was like one o'clock and we didn't get out till one o'clock in the morning. It was October and I was driving uh, all the way from Spencerport back over to um, back over to Fairport. And uh, I drove through the city and one o'clock in the morning I got pulled over and I wasn't doing it. I was completely, you know, there was nothing wrong at all. I just got pulled over. And then um, before I knew it, within two minutes, there were three cop cars there and there was a spotlight in my face and I was told to get out of my vehicle and I was not treated very well. And, you know, a couple minutes into it, everything was fine. But I remember getting back into my car and thinking, I feel really, really violent. And I was pissed off and I was violated. And, and that was the moment I realized, oh my God, there are people who have dealt with this their entire life. And I had it one time for four scary minutes when I was 25 years old. It came crashing down on me and I have been hypersensitive of it since. Lauren, you mentioned it earlier in one of your answers, recognizing privilege, becoming aware of it, and then somehow helping educate others. Can you expand on that in the topic that we're in right now of uh, police community relations, race relations? Can you maybe expand on what you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think a lot of the times, and, and certainly for some of the nonprofits that I've worked with and um, the conversations that have gone on, there's an assumption that um, from a place of privilege and from a place of resource where you have um, resources to contribute, whether that's, you know, time, financial um, support, whatever it is, um, that there's this top down, you, you, you can assume that somebody in a neighborhood needs something or, you know, I'm going to provide, you know, 30 meals for this neighborhood and do some good and feel good about myself and, and, and move forward in a certain way. Well, maybe that neighborhood doesn't need those meals. Maybe you never even asked what that neighborhood could use um, or what those resources could be helpful for. Um, you know, I've come across companies that were like, it's great. We're doing a toy drive. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. Like, where did the toys go? Oh, we figured that out afterwards. Well, then how do you know that, you know, those toys are going to align with that mission? Um, so I think back to the, the conversation piece of things that it's really important that we, we have those conversations up front, that we understand those community needs. And, and I think that goes for race relations and the police too. We need to continue those conversations to understand both sides of the fence and, and understand what's going on that we that we were being pushed and pulled but but what what do we really need what are what are we really trying to accomplish so um you know sometimes uh, it, it, to rashad's point thousands of people aren't coming into the streets in a pandemic to to just you know put their lives at risk and put their health at risk and and understand um that they were a part of something greater, you know, you, there's conversation that needs to be had in order to move the needle and understand what that, what those needs are. So, you know, certainly, certainly that's, that's the first step and, and understanding, 
you know, as I said, not pushing down what we think people need, um, but instead lifting up and understanding um, by conversation and, and by involvement what those needs actually are. Maya, why don't you pick up the conversation, police community relations, race relations, what's on your mind right now? Um, I thought actually, Lauren, what you were saying was interesting. Um, and especially sort of the idea of, you know, a company might do a toy drive and what are you going to do with that later? And we'll figure that out, you know, at some point maybe. Um, and, you know, working um, in marketing, we spend a really long time sort of figuring out what somebody's brand experience is going to look like. You, you, you don't take that lightly. And oftentimes when we start to approach um, how to better a community, especially with brands, sometimes it kind of feels like an extracurricular, just, you know, tack this on the side, make sure that we do it, we, you know, hit our community betterment positioning for the, you know, for the season. And I think that we, there just needs to be more thoughtfulness around that um, from a lot of people, because to Lauren's point, and, you know, to everybody, what we were talking about on this panel today is, is about equity. And that's about making sure you understand what the needs are and respond to them, as opposed to just, throwing somebody something that they might not need. And unfortunately, especially now, we're kind of seeing that a lot of these communities do not need forceful police, um, you know, in the middle of what they're just trying to get through, which is maybe just their day. Um, and, and you also, you know, kind of can't forget, and, and I, I can't take full credit for, for this thought train. I'm, I'm very thankful to Lynn, who sent a message to the panelists to remind us that the police have been very influential in redlining and intentional segregation. I mean, there's just so much um, built into the history of it, um, much like, you know, our, our nation um, that is um, in, ingrained in us that we need to take a hard look at and figure out how we can pull it apart. Um, because it's what, you know, the status quo, what we've been doing is no longer working. Um, and, and so now it's time to fix it and make a change. Yeah. If I could just add quickly, I, yeah. I think that is a really critical point, and I'm glad that you highlighted that, Maya, from the comment in the chat about understanding the history. So, you know, I've had a number of conversations where uh, white leaders in this community have said to me, can we talk about race relations? And although sometimes I'm placed in a situation to where I'm sort of... Uh, I may not necessarily fill the conversation, but I think it's necessary because not all black leaders will have that conversation. So I think that a part of my role and where I stand in this community is to uh, sometimes have that discussion. But I often tell people, if you just think about the history, like I, I told some of my colleagues, you know, how do we address, how do we talk about this? My first thing is, I, I don't know if you're able to do it, but you really have to put yourself in the mindset of the late 1600s. And you really have to think about the harsh treatments of black people in the country. And as years moved on, the development of then slave catchers, which is the new term for police officers. And so when we think about the changes in our community, the, the time has changed from when that happened. And so the name, there was a name change, but what hasn't necessarily changed, and you see this in so many components of the community, what hasn't necessarily changed is the culture and the mindset. And so I think it's really important that we talk about the history and understanding the history and don't just swipe it to the left, like, you know, it's, a, it's an app or something, but really diving deep into the history and understanding that because of the history, it is where we are today. Um, thanks for shot. And I know, Rachel, you didn't get a chance to comment on this. I just want to, before we move on and change the subject on this topic, is any, does any other panelists want to add anything, any additional thoughts? 
I'll pause for five seconds. Just one. Oh, go, go first. I was just going to say, there's a documentary about the race riots that happened here. They call it race riots. Yeah. But uh, July 1964, I think is what it's called. Very good film, worth watching, because what you see happening there, you can see similarly what's happening today. So specific to Rochester, July 64, I think it's called, worth watching. Yeah, and I, for me, I, I just want to remove race, race relationships a little bit from RPD and, and talk about some of the other issues we have. And I think when we look at the design of systems, we need to start asking the questions like, are DHS sanctions inequitably distributed to black and brown people the best we can do? Is passing the young man selling drugs on the street corner every day on the way into work without a thought about how to help that person, is that the best we can do? And if it's not, if we say yes to those things, then I think race relations in our community is very poor because then we're turning the blind eye to these systemic and structural problems that we have without really putting a, a, a real thought into how we can begin to create uh, racial equity on an individual level. I think we need to start by saying, what is the little thing that we can do that will get at the bigger issue long-term? Okay. Um, so we're gonna shift to a different topic. Um, we're gonna talk generational now. Let's talk a little bit about age and um, the differences in perspective between the different generations that are that are on this call right now, this webinar. Um, why don't we start talking about the boomer generation? Um, I'll start with you, Rachel. What is something about the boomers that you think our generation, I think we're all millennials, all the panelists. Um, what is the, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but what is the thing, uh, Rachel, you think, and this is the same question for everyone, that we need to learn from the generation ahead of us, from the boomers? And, and also, what is something that, that we need to, you know, make sure we don't learn from that generation? So from my perspective, and again, I'm just only speaking from my personal experiences and perspective, but I've noticed that, and I'll go, kind of go back to my earlier trope about, um, you know, civic pride. And again, you know, recognizing the, the serious structural challenges that we've spent, spent time discussing. And, and sometimes it can be hard to have pride when you know that there are serious issues in our community. So I want to acknowledge that. Um, but again, coming just from my perspective of trying to bring people here because ultimately they're going to spend money here. Tourism is a billion dollar economic engine for our for the county of Monroe. So we want to get them here, spend money. We want them to spend money at a range of businesses in our community. So that's my my plug there. But um, in terms of generations, I noticed when I moved um, back to Rochester that um, the folks that seem to have the most enthusiasm right now about Rochester are they fall into a couple different categories. There's people like myself, the boomer, the elusive millennial boomerangs, where we're from here, we left that hey it's actually not as bad at home as we grew up thinking it was um and then we came back and kind of rediscovered our love for the community folks like maya who are from somewhere else entirely moved to rochester and were very hopefully pleasantly surprised by all that we have to see and offer and um people like um rashad and lauren that are you know have grew up here and are committed to the community and they just have this innate passion and and, and i find that those kind of i'm sure there's more but you know those kind of groups within the millennial generation are really the ones that are kind of pushing and moving our community forward to the new Rochester. I, I noticed the generational difference because I, I think, and this is just my own personal theory, this is not proven anyway, but I think that there is a generation before us that the, the promise of what they thought their 
their lives in Rochester were going to be was not fulfilled. They thought that they were going to be able to go to one of the big three companies and have a career, a well, a wonderful career. I mean, I always point to my own family's experience and how well, you know, Kodak, the benefits were for, for, you know, for my grandmother, my grandfather died 40 years before she stopped receiving any kind of benefit. I mean, that's like companies just don't do that anymore. Um, so I think there was a whole group of people who this promise of being able to have one job at one company that was going to last if they were 55, they were going to retire with a pension, that dream, that promise was not fulfilled. And that's something I think that really you can see across all um, different, you know, levels of our community. And so I think that we tend to see just a more negative outlook from um, that generation that did not have those kind of that full potential fulfilled because they feel that, you know, oh, Rochester failed me in this regard or then they point to things like the fast ferry or this and that and they, they kind of harp on these things that just never came to push because it matches their personal experience again that's just my own personal I've got no um no signs to back that up but that's kind of my own personal thing that I've just picked up on over time so I think that um that there is this new group of uh, this new generation of millennials that are um just more future focused and really realizing hopefully the potential that Rochester has and I think we all are committed to seeing our community be have even brighter future um than it's past but certainly at the same time I think um not to not to just be bashing on boomers you know I think the experience the commitment to our community from the people who've started companies here and have built lives here you know they're just as invested as well and so I think um I love hearing you know stories about what you know different initiatives the community has done and and just where we've been and all the different highs and lows over the decades you know experience is important generational wisdom and insights are are critical and so i think you know let's let's bring let's bridge the the generational gaps and as boomers millennials and gen z alike whatever's coming after gen z will continue to make rochester um, a better place and that's just kind of going back to the previous conversation i believe that you know with everything that we've gone through in 2020 the challenges of coronavirus the, the fight for racial justice um i genuinely believe that there's just no way we can't come out of this better than we were before. We cannot go backward. We cannot be worse. We have to be better. We will be better. We need to move forward. You know, we need to improve on everything together. But in my, that's how I kind of try to get through it is to know that with everything we've experienced as a community, we have to just build back better and be even better than we were before. Follow up, Gen Zers, the ones who are going to look at us as the old people, Rachel. Yeah. What are they going to bring to the table? In what are you excited about? Some- in addition, to, in addition to their killer TikTok moves, um, I I believe that Gen Z. I'm really excited for them. They are the um, they're the activist generation. I mean, going back to the conversations we had, those when our city streets were filled with thousands of people fighting for um, fighting for Black lives and fighting for justice, I would guess, I would guess a lot of them were members of Gen Z. This is the generation that um, they are creative. They're creators. They are obviously even more technologically adept than um, than those of, of millennials on the line, but they have already lived through so many major events and unsettling times in their short lifetimes. And I just, I think that they have a genuine desire to see the systems and structures around us do better without any, without any explanation as to why not. Um, so that's, that's my take on Gen Z. Hopefully I can still hang with the, with the kids. Rashad, let's go to you. The generational, uh, both sides of it. The the uh, the generation ahead of us. What what do they do better? What can we learn? What should we not learn? Same thing. Let I'm going to keep the Gen Z thing in there too. The generation behind us. What are you excited about with them? And what scares you with them? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. One that I've had to address a number of times, particularly while serving 
at Memorial Amy Zion Church under the leadership of the late Reverend Dr. Kenneth Q. James, uh, the oldest black institution in Monroe County at 196 years, I think. Um, then and likely now, the congregation was on average approximately 65 years or older. Um, so lots of elders in the congregation. Through my experience, in a nutshell, all generations have to do a better job at listening and understanding, uh, listening and responding, and knowing the difference between the two and when to do it. Uh, and also know how to use that new knowledge, that gained knowledge, to make significant change. I think all of us can learn from the ancestors who paved the way. Bold, brilliant, uh, without a Google search, uh, brave, resistant, um, and collective res being responsibly, responsible collectively, collective responsibility. Each a generation adapting some of those characteristics from the ancestors who have paved the way and being loud and proud about the necessary changes and be willing to inconvenience ourselves so that the folks of the generation, no matter the race, inconvenience ourselves, that's folks with privilege inconveniencing themselves, um, making sacrifices today and tomorrow to see that change. So uh, in a nutshell, I think it's really about us being quiet, right? And, and not always responding, but listening being quiet and determining how do we respond and then knowing the difference. Uh, Rachel, you bring up a good point about the generation's ears and you know that response to them and how they might inconvenience themselves might be through the form of social media and busting out a challenge on TikTok about equity. Um, I would love to see that actually, maybe a TikToker is here listening. So I would love to see something like that. But it is really about us uh, at times, knowing when to shut up and listen and knowing when not to shut up and speak up to make that change. Uh, Steve, boomers, Gen Zers. Yeah, the, uh, I think this, the past three years, so I, I spent the last three years at Kodak. And I mean, that's a company with such a rich history. Uh, and one of the like unique things to me as somebody that wasn't expecting this and somebody that's not from here, we've seen how many people had been there for over 30 years, over 40 years. I, I even knew somebody that retired after 50 years and I was working with them. And it's just, there's so much you can learn from this people that went before you. Um, from my perspective, one of the greatest things I could learn from them when listening and talking with them was how many things have been the same for so long sometimes? And, and it's like, okay, we've been doing the same thing over and over and it's not working. How can we change these things? Uh, and so I think that's some of the greatest value of being able to learn from people that came before you, learning from even just Rochester's history, um, decades even before that is we've, going back to the documentary I mentioned from July 64, I mean, similar things here in the, that happened then are happening now. So uh, it, I think it's really important to really stop and, and pay attention to what things have been happening or what people have learned before and how can we change those things. And then for the future, I mean, yeah, I can remember a time when I didn't have a smartphone. I can remember a time in like high school where I didn't grow up with that 
ease of communication or that ease of being able to access information. And so this new generation, this next generation is, it has that at the, at the, just at their fingertips, they can, they can get that kind of information in the communication. And so it's about, I think, helping channel that and helping provide opportunities for that generation to care about things that matter. Like Rachel had mentioned, like they, they're very engaged. And I think it's, it's helping to guide and helping provide opportunities and willing to listen too, because again, in Rashad, I think said it so, so well between uh, just listening and understanding and listening, responding. Um, I think, I think it's just so important. And that goes both ways in both generations. And so. really quickly, just to add on, Steve, you, you made me think of a really good point um, for boomers to know when to step aside mm. and pass the torch. Mm-hmm. And we see that so much in our community because people are, they love making the change, whatever change it is that they're doing. Mm-hmm. But there are opportunities for them to say, it's time for me to step back. And while I'm stepping back, teaching these young people how to lead the way. Yeah. Um, but knowing when to say, I've been in this role for five, 10, 20, 30 years, I need to step back and allow the young people to lead. Yeah. Maya, boomers, Gen Z. <laughs> um. You know, I feel like I can't speak totally to an entire population of people, but what I can say uh, is that I feel like what I love about our generation, the people on this panel and people that I align myself with is that we are voracious learners. Um, And I just think that's so important. And it obviously is the trend of, I think, this panel discussion. We've talked a lot about learning and listening today. Um, I think that our um, generation, you, you know, we came up in the height of like, this unbelievable flow of information through, you know, Facebook and Instagram and, you know, every meme you could possibly find. And I think that we have found a way to make it palatable and to take away from it what we need. Um, and I just, I think that's important for everybody to be able to do. I, I don't think that you can take, you know, one thing as Bible, you have to build, you know, uh, an information base and and really become a voracious learner, I think, along with our current generation um, to really uh, understand what's happening and how we can make things better, um, how we can sort of change the world together, if you will. Um, What I love about, you know, (laughs) Gen Z is also probably what scares me about them. It feels like they have nothing to lose. They've got so much tenacity. Um, And sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I can't do that. Like, what what about me? And, and you know, I don't see that with the Gen Z group. It's pretty cool. Um, And sometimes I wish I just had that ability, you know, to to put myself out there for the greater good. Um, Because I think that's that's what we're missing uh, with a lot of these generations is not being so insular and focused on ourselves, but being there for the greater good. Uh, Let me skip down to Miguel. Miguel, the generation question. Yeah, I think most of my feedback has been shared already, but I will say specifically in the Latino community, that passing the torch, passing the baton um, is very, very hard. Um, We've had uh, leaders who arrived here from Puerto Rico in the 1950s who still are the leaders in some cases, and it's hard to um, separate for them. So I think that's one of the challenges we face. Um, I think for Gen Zers though, you know, they have, they're the generation with the greatest access to information. Um, I think what we'll start to see is more innovative approaches and productivity in the workforce as they begin to climb the ladder. Um, I think the younger generation, the one thing I worry about, though, is some of the soft skills and and human connection because we're so attached 
people are so attached to their technology. We have to figure out how we, we help break that mold a little bit. Stomach growling. <laughs> um, Lauren, I, I saved you for last because, you know, I wanted to kind of chime in with you. Let's do a little business owner's perspective on this. You're in the workplace with both. Lauren, what do you think? Boomers, Gen Zers, positives, negatives? Yeah, so I'm in a, I'm in a unique position because I'm working with my father every day. I'm third generation in a family business. So um, certainly grew up watching my grandfather lead and my dad has built the company um, into what my grandfather would think was crazy today. Um, but um, I had the pleasure of, of watching my dad and his work ethic and how hard he, he drives and, um, and his commitment to the community um, and, and how he has taught me um, in many ways how to be a part of a community and how to invest myself in that community. Um, and my brothers and I are, are trying to keep up and we're, we're doing the best we can, um, but we feel very fortunate to be able to, to learn from him. I think our generation is, um, is very collaborative. I think that we um, are very accessible, we're easy, we're, you know, there, there's a piece of it where I try to connect the arts community and the development community and there's ways to tie things together to, to not just do a, a basic development and build a building, although that's super fulfilling and, and to watch something come to fruition that way. Um, there's opportunities in, in what we do and tying in, um, in other, other folks that, that can invest and, and be involved in these projects. So um, I'm hopeful that I can, can continue to do that. Um, and, I, and I think what everyone said about the, the younger generation, Gen Z, um, the technology, you know, I'm, Rashad, I'm not a TikToker. I, I don't know how to do, do that stuff. Um, but um, but yeah, the information that are at people's fingertips and the access that they have and how much information is being thrown at them. And, and to Miguel's point, I think the, the personal connection, um, I still find that the most um, fulfilling type of relationship. I, you know, to a phone is a phone, but it's it's nice to put that down sometimes and and be able to really connect with someone. So um, I hope that that next generation remembers to do that and take the time to do that um, because it's so valuable. Yeah, I, I'm glad you talked about relationships. I, I jotted a couple things down myself. I'm in the workplace with all of the generations and for the, the, you know what the boomers do really well is they understand the value of building relationships regarding, regarding how to, how to make a sale. We'll, we'll say they build relationships that are truly relationships. They're truly friendships, true connections. And down the road that might lead to a sale, right? But really it's about building a relationship. Whereas our generation, we have networking events and you want to shake hands and give a card and make a sale. And that, it just doesn't work. You know, the, the, the boomers have that one. They, they understand that. Now, I will say, if anyone is ever going to use the words, but we've always done it that way, that's usually going to be a boomer. And that, that always like makes me cringe, but we've always done it this way. That's not a real answer to anything, by the way. Ever, ever is that okay? <laughs> um, and, well, maybe there's a possible... Anyway, um, with the Zers, the tech, I spent 15 years in media learning audio and video editing. These kids are better than me by a mile at audio and video editing and they have no formal training and I do. So that's, I'm very jealous of that. Um, uh, but the, the other, the one maybe negative on the Zers, I don't know if you guys seen it, at least in the workplaces, they, they do want to start their job. They understand they're going to start entry level, but they would like to be the CEO by week three. 
that's when they would like to be promoted to see. <laughs> so I have noticed that a little with the young people. They are they are entry level going on owners, I think. Um, okay, I, we, we are right at the exact moment we're supposed to be done. If anyone has just a quick 10 second wrap up they wanna do, I'll turn it back over to Peter. Let me just give you the opportunity to do a quick little one last thought. I would just quickly close by noting that you know, this year it, it has just been long and challenging. And again, I, I'm hopeful, and especially after hearing from the perspectives of these wonderful folks on this panel, I, you know, it's it's there are significant challenges that we need to overcome. But I am confident as ever that um, our community's future will be brighter than its past. And um, especially as we look to see what's going to happen you know, just how everything's going to change following the pandemic. And, um, you know, we have been ranked on the top of a couple different lists in terms of best cities to live in after after the pandemic. Um, never never would have guessed that'd be an accolade we'd be winning. But, um, you know, folks are recognizing the value of being in a place like Rochester. So to everyone on the line, whether you are Gen Z or Beta or, you know, baby boomers, greatest generation, you've all played a part in helping to make our community what it is today. And now we can all play a part in making it even better tomorrow. Awesome. Thank you very much. I'd like to add my thanks to this tremendous panel, very provocative and full of rich and interesting insights. Thanks again to today's sponsors, series sponsors, Community Preservation Corporation, M&T Bank, GRE, corporate sponsors, RIT, S&T Bank, Fargus Associates, Visit Rochester, and our supporting sponsor, Rock 2025. And with that, I wish you all a very special holiday and a much better year in 2021. Thank you.